the mindset has shifted from D2C being a true business model to D2C just, you know, being a channel as part of a larger business model. I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Danny James, and we're reporters at Retail Dive. This is our podcast where we look into the biggest retail trend shaping the industry. We talk about what traditional retailers are up to, what's happening in the DTC space, and everything in between. Plus, we'll be talking to some industry experts along the way. This is The Backroom. Hey everybody, welcome back to the back room. Today, Danny, James, and I are going to be taking a look at the DTC space, which has had an interesting 2023. We're recording this at the end of the year. Danny, you just recently had kind of a look back piece. What would you say stands out for DTC? Yeah, so I think overall, I mean, across retail in general, right? It was a weird year, Um, kind of coming off at the tail end of a lot of COVID restrictions and yet a ton of macroeconomic pressures, right? So it's been kind of a whirlwind across the industry. And I think specifically with D2C brands, smaller brands in general, we started off 2023 a little rough for some folks. (laughs) So tons of layoffs across the board, a lot of transformation plans announced throughout the year, and some major C-suite shuffles, right? But I think in terms of what were some of the biggest stories from January to December, one of the wins, so to speak, this year was when Oddity went public. That is the owner of the beauty brands Il Maquillage and Spoiled Child. They're going to be opening or launching some new brands. They're expected to in the next few years as well. They're a true D2C company in the sense that both their brands are exclusively e-commerce and seem to be extremely successful. And Oddity went public. They filed to go public in June. And some of their filings revealed that they have had an annual net income from 2020 to 2022, at least. And they ended up you know, opening on the market at an even higher share price than they initially projected. And that was after they like updated and bumped the share price several times. So that was one of the biggest wins. Another huge win this year for the space was Naturium, the skincare brand, was sold to Elf Beauty, or at least they're in the process of finalizing that deal. The deal is for about $335 million. And it's pretty interesting because Naturium comes from one of these brand incubators, which we've heard a lot less from brand incubators, I think, in the past year than we have um, before then. But Naturium comes from the incubator called The Center. They're pretty private, um, not a very public incubator, but they run a bunch of beauty brands. And Naturium has been one of the most successful. I think on the flip side, there have been several bankruptcies throughout the year, the biggest and most recent one being Smile Direct Club. So an interesting space because it touches into healthcare, right, with dental aligners and, you know, straightening teeth. But they filed for bankruptcy towards the end of the year, and they ceased operations entirely in December because they couldn't find, you know, an appropriate buyer for the company. Um, And they've kind of left their customers in the dark on that. Yeah, I heard even some, you know, orthodontists were upset. It's interesting. We don't often, a lot of times an IPO and the filings that go with it will reveal just, you know, a pattern of losses for a lot of DTC brands that decide to go public. And 
that makes oddity an oddity, I guess. Do you think that this is a reflection of maybe higher expectations of brands that go public at this point? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think at the beginning of 2023, we talked about this a bit, how in a month or so leading up to the new year, we had seen several brands, their C-suite executives starting to talk about profitability more than more than ever before in the D2C space. Because I think infamously, right, the space is used to growth at all costs, attitudes. That's what investors and VCs have like focused on for the past decade. So a lot of the big, very public and publicly trading companies we think of as D2Cs have not really turned to true profit, maybe ever. Few of them have. And and that attitude has just shifted entirely, partially due to the macroeconomics. Um, and also, I think because perhaps investors have not seen the return or the progress that they thought they would see on some of these long-standing publicly trading DDCs. So yes, that attitude has been the case for the past year, and it's expected to be the case for the next year as well, as funding is, is expected to be still kind of tough to get hands on. VCs are caring more about you having relationships with existing retailers, um, even kind of changing the DTC landscape entirely nowadays. But yeah, profitability is a huge, huge deal nowadays. And I think even with Birkenstock, who isn't necessarily a true DTC like Oddity is, when they went public this year, um, they went public with net incomes as well in their records. And, you know, really good revenue numbers, great growth and expected growth for the next year. Um, and it's just unusual. I don't think we, we've seen that for the past decade. I have to call out the fact that you are mentioning net incomes, which is yes. true profits. Right. Um, <laughs> we had a whole episode dedicated to Danny's story on EBITDA, which is a squishier um, mm-hmm. way to show profitability. I, I'm kind of thinking of profitability and in air quotes right there. Um, so that's worth checking out. We, we don't have to belabor that, but... but Well, yeah, but I, I think you bring up, it's a good reminder for the listeners because, um, you know, another traditionally D2C that they do retail now company that is public is Grove Collaborative. Um, they're one to watch, I think, as the new year continues. And I mentioned them in relation to profitability and net income because... Their newest CEO, who just came in a few months ago, um, when I interviewed him as he came in, he made it a point to to mention to me and other reporters that this next year the company is focused, going to be focused on profitability, and he expects to be profitable next year. Um, when I asked him what he defined as profitability, he was not talking about net income, but he was talking about positive EBITDA and EBITDA growth. So, and adjusted EBITDA, I should say. <laughs> so profitability is the word being thrown around more, um, but it can depend, it can differ based on who defines it as what. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely important. And I, I wonder if, um, you know, analysts will also call out EBITDA and I wonder if mm-hmm. um, they will be less inclined to value that. I'm sure we'll keep seeing it as a, as a measurement, right. but definitely it seems like the asterisk is kind of grown brighter next to EBITDA. It's interesting that, you know, DTC, the, mm-hmm. it seemed like the beginning when they were 
the mighty disruptors and we had all kinds of unicorns that we um, don't have anymore, that the whole point was to avoid wholesale and avoid partnerships with the retailers. And that seems to have changed. I mean, it, I, it, you know, there are very few true DTC only DTCs right. anymore. There's barely any that come to mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen some experts and analysts in the space kind of talking about how the the mindset has shifted from D to C being a true business model to D to C just, you know, being a channel as part of a larger business model, which is a shift. Um, I think the only true major D to C I can think of immediately that is publicly trading would be Warby Parker. Um, and they're in a unique space, right? Because they're dealing with eyeglasses and they've expanded heavily into the actual healthcare part of that. Um, so it would make a little more sense that they've remained true to a D to C business model. Um, but yeah, most, most D to C's are not D to C's anymore. I mean, all birds has a huge wholesale presence. Um, but what we are seeing, and I think it's something to watch for 2024 is brands that have traditionally been almost all wholesale have shifted in the last couple of years. Um, to focus more on D to C as one of their main channels. So even Nike, I think this has been a point of strategy for them. But, you know, in terms of brands like Canada Goose, in terms of brands like On, these are, you know, higher end, Canada Goose is luxury, but these are higher end brands that have focused traditionally on wholesale. Uh, On has sold through very niche kind of athletics, running footwear retailers. Uh, Canada Goose has worked with high end department stores. Both of these brands in the past year have been talking about D2C on every single earnings call they've had. Canada Goose is trying to, you know, really expand their owned retail presence across the world in the next few years. On has been more focused on D2C as they've invested in, you know, their marketing to niche athletes. And they've also focused more on expanding their offerings as well as owned retail store footprint. So I think we're seeing a shift from D to C being a true business model, but we're also seeing traditional wholesale brands focus more on the channel. I, I feel like there might be a third um, leg mm. of this stool, which is in a way, um, when a, once a DTC brand, like say Warby Parker, as you mentioned, starts opening stores, and they have quite a few at this point, um, Mm-hmm. What we used to call that is a specialty retailer. And in right. apparel, if you think of brands like Gap, Banana Republic, you could call them DTC. I mean, that's what they do. They have their own brands. They don't do wholesale. But I wonder if, because their brands are so strong, even Gap that has you know fallen from a mighty perch in the past couple of decades, has a really strong brand, still sells billions of dollars worth of clothing. Mm-hmm. If wholesale, you know, if it's good enough for the younger brands, why wouldn't it be good enough for an already established brand? Yeah, um, so I wonder if we'll see I more of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just yeah. interesting. You don't think of Gap as really D2C, but in, in a way, that's kind of been the business model predominantly. Um, and as they struggle, you might be right. Maybe they'll look to more wholesale partnerships. So tell me, are there areas of, you know, categories that stand out to you? It feels like in general for retail, beauty has been a really strong 
category, despite inflation, beauty has really stood out. Is that true for DTC? And and what else is sort of, you know, a strength? Yeah, I think beauty is interesting because I would, almost every category, right, is oversaturated these days. (laughs) But beauty, I think, is especially fairly oversaturated. Um, And the barrier to entry to creating a beauty brand is is very easy, relatively speaking. And there are a ton of formulators and manufacturers out there who will just sell you, you know, a pre-made product and you can slap a label on it, alter it slightly however you want. So beauty has become more easily accessible to brand founders or people interested in starting a business. I think the space that has is certainly slightly oversaturated, but has the best competition um, and disruptors in it right now would be the athletics, apparel, and footwear space, certainly. I think everyone would immediately start thinking about the two brands in this space, which are on um, the Swiss-based you know, footwear and apparel brand that I spoke about earlier, but also Hoka. They're owned by Deckers, um, and it's certainly Deckers' strongest brand in their portfolio. So both of these athletic brands have gained a ton of popularity, even just in the past year. Hoka is regularly going viral online. They have a more, I would say, young, um, you know, I, I think even Gen Z, you could say audience, although they plan to grow that as time goes on. On has had great success marketing itself to niche athletic groups. And by that, I mean, competitive runners specifically, although they've also started working with tennis players as well. Um, They regularly sponsor some of the biggest runners at the largest marathons across the world. Um, And they've also found themselves popular among kind of like business professionals that are on the younger side. I've spoken to several analysts about this and and, um, an analyst I spoke to, Piper Sandler, was saying several of her colleagues were on sneakers to the office nowadays because they have a look that can kind of blend in with professional attire. So we have seen both of these do really well on being a publicly traded company um, and not part of a brand portfolio. We have a lot of insight into their financials and they've been able to turn a net profit on an annual basis for fiscal year 2022. Um, They've seen their revenue steadily increase since it started reporting in 2018 Um, And they've got big plans to expand into training um, as a category and expand their apparel offerings. This so this actually does sound like true disruption. Like this sounds like something that would sort of warrant a response in merchandising or marketing from the giants like Adidas and Nike and Nike. Yeah, I, I think it's the only space I can think of right now where. There's been a long-standing, you know, head of the pack, Nike being the big one, and then of course Adidas and a few others following behind. But this is the biggest competition we've seen to Nike in a while, I think. Of course, they are not selling on the scale that Nike does. I mean, they bring in an insane amount of sales every year. But in terms of the age of the brand and their progression so far and their ability to reach true profitability this soon. Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty successful brand and certainly one to watch. That's a brand that has momentum. One thing I noticed um, this year is that Unilever, which had scooped mm. up Dollar Shave Club, 
I don't know, five or six years ago for a billion dollars. That was when DTCs were consistently getting kind of sky high valuations and the men's grooming space was especially, you know, Mm -hmm. in focus. Unilever sold off Dollar Shave Club kind of unceremoniously. What, What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think um I think there's only so much we can know about the financials, right? So I should say that. Um Yeah, they it was for an undisclosed <laughs> amount. So who knows? Right. It'll come out eventually. I mean, how much they, you know, have they like gained share or not, God only knows. But Unilever, um, they're retaining a minority shareholding control, I should say that, mm-hmm. in the deal that they have with a private equity firm, it's Nexus Capital Management. But yeah, we don't know exactly what the terms of the deal were. I think what's happening here is some of these larger consumer products, goods, companies, it's kind of interesting. Unilever seems to be selling them off, several of their brands. I know Daphne reported on some new brands this week. Um, Yeah, it was an interesting list, actually. Q-tips, Noxzema, you know. Right. Kind of these brands that you at least with Q-tips, it's like, you don't necessarily think of it as a brand, but it actually is a brand. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it's not just the name of a product per se, but yeah, Unilever has been focused on selling off some of these consumer product goods brands. They're really trimming the fat, so to speak. Um, What does that say about the performance of Dollar Shave Club? Maybe they didn't get the return they were hoping for. That's perhaps some of the speculation. Um, Nexus Capital Management, I mean, it's an interesting fit for them as well to buy Dollar Shave Club because they have like Tom's and Lamps Plus in their investment portfolio. So they're kind of all over the place. It's interesting because with P&G, which is another consumer products good entity, I mean, a giant really, they invested in or acquired Myel earlier in 2023, and that was a big deal. Um, so we're seeing differences in investment strategies between these big giants. I wonder too, um, Dollar Shave Club, I it's I don't know if they entered stores. They did, yes. If I remember correctly, you're able to find them at some major retailers, including Walmart and Target. Um, and they've tried to expand. Their big thing was razors, obviously. Um, but they've tried to expand from razors and, you know, kind of do a broader men's personal care offering. Um, And I can't say how successful that's been. As I mentioned, beauty and personal care is a hugely oversaturated space. And anyone who walks down an aisle in Target would know that. Well, and they would probably notice that Harry's is getting a lot of shelf space. Right. Yeah. Yes. And the branding is not that different just from an aesthetic point of view. Um, yeah, that, that's a big issue, I think, just in stores like Target. A lot of these brands are starting to look the same. Mm-hmm. So we talked about some of the, you know, big players, the ones really gaining steam, maybe kind of visibly posing a challenge to the more legacy brands in their markets. What are some emerging DTC brands that we should look out for? Sure. So D2C loosely, right? <laughs> just, yeah, just say right. that. Um I'll, I'll mention which of these brands is a DTC business model versus like digitally oriented, but not exclusive. So I think one of the interesting spaces would be piercings. Um, and, you know, some of our mm. colleagues have reported on this the past few years, but piercings have become more popular and a brand I'm looking at is Studs. Um, they sell their own jewelry, but they 
online, but they also have been rapidly kind of opening piercing stores where they also sell the jewelry and they perform the service. They opened one in Georgetown that's always very popular in DC. So I've been looking at them, especially as it pertains to the jewelry space, because they are exclusively D2C right now. Um, Whereas we've seen some other jewelry brands who maybe don't do piercing services, they've been actually entering wholesale deals. So an interesting space and brand to watch. Um, When it comes to beauty, I think anybody or any brand, I should say, within the, the portfolio of that incubator I mentioned earlier, the center, which is difficult to say in a sentence. Um, But they also run a brand called Fleur. They are fragrance focused. They are not exclusively D2C, but they do have an online first focus and they now sell, I believe, through Sephora. Um, And they've just grown in popularity massively. Um, Another brand I think you could watch is in the beauty space would be Road, which is run by celebrity Haley Bieber. They are exclusively D2C, only sell online. They've been like that for the past year plus. I'm curious to see if they expand into wholesale at some point. They've had some, I think, flack for their shipping and, you know, stock abilities, just issues keeping stock in. Um, So it would be interesting to see if they end up working with a wholesaler kind of to get people more access to it. And then one other brand I'll mention is Jones Road. They are created by the founder of Bobby Brown, who no longer owns Bobby Brown. She started Jones Road as a simplistic kind of minimalist brand, which we see as a huge trend. Another brand like that would be Merit Beauty. But Jones Road has been opening some D2C stores. Um, They have one in New York City, and I believe they're opening or have opened another one already this year. So something to watch is is Jones Road in terms of their own retail footprint. Jones Road is all over my Instagram. Obviously, they're targeting me. It is interesting because I I've I've wondered every time I see her because she, Bobby Brown kind of is often in the TikToks and the Instagram reels and stuff. I wonder how confused consumers are by the fact that her you know eponymous brand is no longer helmed by her. I think a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and something you you just reminded me of that I do want to mention as a trend in beauty is a, a larger focus on mature beauty mm-hmm. and beauty customers who are not all in their 20s or 30s. Merit Beauty and Jones Road, I think they're really meant to be suited for more mature customers. So something to watch. So I the other thing, just to kind of stick with beauty for one more minute, which is Sephora seems to really have their eyes peeled for some of these mm-hmm. um, brands. It feels like a lot of like Glossier is in Sephora. Is Ulta mm-hmm. similarly starting to get on this bandwagon or is Sephora kind of have this space? I'm so happy you mentioned this because... This is huge talk of the town in terms of like beauty community online just in the past week as we're recording this. Um, But Ulta has been taking up way more prestige beauty brands that were originally like exclusive to Sephora. Um, In the past week, it's been announced that they are adding Sol de Janeiro, Ola Henriksen and Charlotte Tilbury to their offerings which is a huge deal, especially the Charlotte Tilbury one, because that is a very popular brand. I think most people I know buy it only through Sephora. 
So for them to be coming to Ulta is is a really big deal. And I think we'll continue to see Ulta kind of buy that prestige market share from Sephora. They already have a ton of offerings in both prestige, mastige, and just like kind of drugstore categories, but they are definitely trying to take some some market share from Sephora. You know who they also might take market share, because I've seen a few of those brands at Nordstrom, and, mm. you know, Sephora and Ulta in the first place sort of disrupted the department store beauty right. department. Yeah. And I just think that the more Sephora and Ulta have these attractive brands that can sort of, as you mentioned, attract different customer segments, different age, different demographics that the department store is just left behind sort of once again. Right. Another hit to department stores. And and I will say, this is anecdotal, but I was just at an Ulta over the weekend with my my partner, Matt. He is regularly at the Sephora's with me, kind of in the boyfriend corner, as they call it. Um, and he was saying he really prefers being in the Ulta in terms of like, they are just way larger. Most of them are way larger than a Sephora. Um, he found that the people working there were maybe a little nicer and not too on top of you. Um, so yeah, I think Ulta has really stepped up their store, you know, impact, so to speak. So I want to make a prediction, which is that if, as the, you know, competition between Ulta and Sephora heats up, that the department stores are going to either have to step up or, you know, step back. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the days of even buying Chanel, and some of like La Mer exclusively at the department store, like Sephora's taken that over. So they need to up their games in terms of like different categories and offerings with brands. Danny, this was great. Thanks so much for kind of getting us up to speed in the DTC space. Everybody should check out Danny's story, eight DTC trends to follow in 2024 for more look into what's coming this year in this space. This episode of The Backroom was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.